don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast, and I am your host, Hansa Bergois. And today we have Jules Evans, who uh, has written two books, Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, as well as the one we'll be talking about today, The Art of Losing Control, A Philosopher's Search for Ecstatic Experience. And Jules Evans also has a very popular TED Talk out there. He's a research fellow at the University of London, an all-around smart Englishman. And uh, we're going to have or what follows is a pretty wild conversation about ecstatic experience and all of the benefits and dangers thereof, of which there are many of both. We'll be talking about everything from full-on born-again Christianity and speaking in tongues, of which uh, Jules Evans has some experience with that community, as well as ayahuasca ceremonies and psychedelic experience and music and dance and all the ways that people seek these kinds of experiences, as well as what happens and, you know, what to do when uh, you've had a sublime experience that changes your life uh, and what not to do, honestly, because there are some dangers. So um, if you're enjoying these discussions on the We Croak podcast, definitely subscribe, tell your friends, head over to our Patreon. Uh, Your support means everything to us. And I hope you enjoy this one. I think uh, we get somewhere really special. So do hang on until the end. Without further ado, here is Jules Evans. Hey, Jules Evans. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Hansa. It was great to meet you when I was in London briefly and to hear about your book, uh, The Art of Losing Control, which I've now read. Mm. Yeah, it was great to meet you as well. Uh, I've been using your app for a while. Um, I've got We Croak on my phone. I heard about it through a course that Pema Chodron, the, the, the American Buddhist nun, taught. And um, yeah, it was just it was just funny that you happened to be in London and in the, in the part of London that I was. So we, we met and had lunch. and It was nice to meet you. It was really great to meet you too. So uh, ecstasy, that is the topic of the book. And there actually a connection right down into the etymology of the word where mm-hmm. ecstasy comes from like a Greek root that means standing outside yourself. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, now we, we, we tend to think of ecstatic someone being ecstatic is just meaning they're very very happy like if you if you did a google search for ecstatic you get results from the sports pages mainly about uh roger federer ecstatic over winning you know a tournament um but yeah the the original much older meaning of the word uh is as you say like this moment where you stand outside your habitual self and traditionally, in you know, in in, in uh, older cultures, that would be a, you'd go outside yourself, and some kind of god or spirit would go within you. So the flip side of ecstasis in ancient Greek culture was enthusiasmos, which is where we get the word enthusiasm, and that literally means having a god within you. So in a moment of ecstasy, you kind of exit yourself, you uh, and and some spirit good or bad or indifferent can go into you uh, and that can be accompanied by different emotions uh, as anyone who's you know had an ecstatic experience can tell you it can be euphoric or it could be deeply serene or it can be very frightening as well and there's also an idea in in, in kind of cultures around the world that in these moments of ecstasis 
you could either have enhanced powers of some sort, what, you know, called kind of charismatic gifts in Christianity. So you might have enhanced powers of insight or healing or inspiration, or you could have somehow a degradation of your functioning, uh, which is what, you know, in, in cu some cultures they talk about like possession, you get possessed by a bad spirit and you, and you, and you become, you know, less able to do things rather than more able to do things. So that's that's how it's been understood in in you know in cultures around the world and in 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 the history of Western culture. So right from the get go here, we're talking about something a little bit more intense than just like I'm super happy. Like this is a physiological thing that might make you like convulse or really feel very very different. Isn't that correct? Yeah, it's it's it usually is taken to mean a, a quite an altered state. Um, so it's a switch from your normal sense of self and your normal sense of reality. Now, I have to say that when I started digging into this book, I'm like, okay, great ecstasy. This is going to be a romp. This is going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> and it was in moments, but it was also very challenging, made me very uncomfortable in places because there's, uh, I'm sure as will come out in this conversation, quite a bit of dark side and transformation and fear that comes up with this stuff. So I'm really interested in that. And I'm also interested, you know, you wrote this book previous to this one about Stoic philosophy, the life of the mind, being rational. A lot of people talk about that book. Um, it's really good. And then you felt like there was something missing. Is that right? And that's what led you toward these investigations of a more ecstatic experience? Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, even at the end of, as you say, my first book was about Greek philosophy and how that helped me and how it helps lots of other people how it inspired cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's that Greek rationalist approach to healing. But even at the end of that book, I wrote an appendix called Socrates and Dionysus, saying that um, there is an alternative kind of route to healing, which doesn't involve self-control uh, and rationality, but instead kind of surrender of control and altered states of consciousness. And I said that that alternative route uh, is just as valid. And so I kind of knew I was going to do this second book as a kind of uh, companion to the first. Um, it's definitely not an anti-rational book. Uh, it's saying this is just, a you know, another side to human nature, which can also um, be a route to healing, um, though it, I, it probably is a slightly riskier route than just the route of kind of rational philosophy, but it's one that I've also found seriously healing and helpful in my life. All right. So let's talk about how you got into, you know, because your, your book, just so that listeners know, is, you know, you basically structure it as all the different ways that people seek and find ecstatic experiences that you basically could find from everything from rock and roll to psychedelics, to deep meditation, to being in nature but you begin in the revival tent, which was a chapter that made me really uncomfortable, I have to admit, um, <laughs> because you weren't really out writing a, a book about ecstasy yet, it seemed, at least in the, in the thing. You were really um, almost converted. Uh, can you talk about that experience? Yeah. Um, so I, I guess at the, at the end of writing my first book, I was interested in where people can find ecstatic experiences in modern Western culture, and particularly in the UK, which is a very, um, very secular culture. 
where only about 2% of people go to church regularly. So it's very different to uh, the States. Um, and so, I mean, the first chapter actually in the book is on spontaneous uh, spiritual experiences, which are moments of like ecstatic experiences or peak experiences, which happen out of nowhere when you're not seeking them. Now, that could be like you're just walking down the street or you're on a bus and you suddenly, you know, your consciousness shifts and and, and you have a moment of of fullness, which you remember your whole life. Um, or it can be uh, it could be like a um, near death experience. You don't you don't seek them. You know, you have a cardiac arrest and you get you get taken to hospital. And while you're there, you have some kind of encounter with a white light or something. And that changes you as well, changes you for the rest of your life. Um, so that's how I got into this area was that I had a like a near death experience when I was about 24. I'd suffered from post-traumatic stress for like six years from having done too many drugs as a teenager. Um, and then I basically had a, 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 a bad skiing accident where I, I kind of fell off a cliff while I was skiing. And I guess I could have died, but um, I, I had what I now know to be a kind of, in some ways, quite typical near-death type encounter where I felt immersed in a white light and I felt like very healed and loved. And that experience, though I can't really understand it rationally, was was very important to my healing. So that piqued my interest in these kinds of experiences. I'm like, so definitely stoicism and, and CBT helped me a lot. But the first thing that really helped me was that weird experience, uh, which I can't explain, but which was profoundly helpful to me. And so I, I guess, you know, years later, I did, first of all, I didn't talk about that experience to anybody for years. I don't even know why in retrospect, but I didn't even talk to my family about it. And I didn't write about it until the very end of my first book. And the only reason I did was because my publisher said, uh, we need five more pages. <laughs> so I was like, um, what am I going to, oh, I'll just write about this experience. So I wrote about it in, at the end of my first book. But then when I was writing this second book, The Art of Losing Control, I was like, can one seek that kind of experience? I mean, it's all very well to say to people, I was really helped and healed from post-traumatic stress by a near-death experience. But, you know, the audiences are just going to say, well, lucky you, that's no help to me. What, you know, are you saying I need to go and have a serious skiing accident to overcome like emotional problems? Um, so I became interested in whether we can seek these kinds of experiences. And that got me interested in, I guess, churches um, as communities where people can still go to like go beyond their normal self. And I, I was interested, um, I think what, what around around the time I was um, beginning my research, I was dating uh, someone, a, a Christian woman, and she introduced me to some of her friends and some of the friends worked at this church, which was like a, a kind of I guess, quite charismatic Christian uh, church. So charismatic Christianity means a type of Christianity that believes in like Holy Spirit ecstatic encounters and believes that uh, the Holy Spirit can come into you and heal you and all this kind of stuff. And they tend to have very emotional services with like rock and roll and all that kind of thing. So I went along there and I was partly going as a researcher and a journalist thinking, this is this is interesting to write about. But partly also, 
I was I was wondering if this could be a route to the kind of experience I had when I had a near death experience, like maybe that kind of experience, which certainly the Stoics don't talk much about. Maybe that was like what the Christians talk about when they talk about Holy Spirit encounters. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. And just um, I wonder if you could, because I'm curious now about this near death experience, just describe like if there are any like sort of visual or ways that you remember it and sort of what it felt like when you thought back to it. Like what was that that experience or feeling that you were searching for, you know, um, beginning at this church? Uh, so the near-death experience, well, um, it was like, so I kind of fell off, went through the side of a fence when I was skiing. I fell, I guess, about 30 feet or so. And then it must have been almost instantly on the moment of impact. I felt um, like immersed in a white light like I wasn't aware of being on the mountain uh, and obviously this is a long time ago this is when I was 26 so this is just my recollection of it but as far as I remember I felt immersed in a white light and I felt kind of like filled with love uh, and I felt totally like okay and sure that there was something in us that can't be broken and basically post-traumatic stress is partly the deep belief that you're broken at a fundamental level and therefore unlovable. And this was like a, a, a kind of experience which was saying, no, you're not broken, you're totally fine, you're totally loved. And actually what's been causing your suffering is your own beliefs. So that turned out to be true, uh, that insight. And that's what led me to stoicism and CBT. And all this, that whole experience must have taken place, I think in about a minute, because then um, I kind of came back to my body, realized where I was, realized I'd been in a skiing accident. And then my uncle appeared, you know, skied up and said, oh, my God. Um, so it must have been just in a minute. But it was there was a lot of as, as you'll know, if you tried psychedelics, you can get a lot of information in one minute. So, you know, and that was so transformative, that deep feeling of being connected to something greater than you and feeling deeply loved. That is just so much more powerful. I mean, that's a shift at a kind of at a, at a fundamental level of your psyche, which is so much more powerful uh, than cognitive therapy or, or stoicism. Although CBT and stoicism were really helpful as a kind of follow up. Um, so I was I was I was looking for that, really. Um, I guess I, I got, you know, I, I stoicism had helped me for many years, but I was interested in whether one could feel Stoicism has this idea of living in harmony with the Logos, like the divine intelligence that permeates all things. So it's a theistic spirituality or philosophy, but there's no real sense of a deep existential connection to the Logos. It's more of a kind of intellectual principle. Uh, and I was looking for more of a deep experiential connection to the divine, basically. Right. So you had a spontaneous, very profound like experience of love, oneness, the yeah. whole the whole thing. And basically it turned you into a seeker years later. Um, you were willing to investigate anyone who said they knew how to get back to that place. Um, I guess, I mean, I suppose I, I approached it partly as a seeker and partly as a kind of intellectual researcher. So I was uh, I was open to the I guess the church and I was also kind of had the sense of like the church in Britain disappearing and um, and the, my culture had become a culture very lacking in transcendence. That's how I felt. 
And I was interested in whether people like me, like, I guess you could say, skeptical seekers, could find a way back into the church and find a home there and find a, a kind of collective means to transcendence through the church. So that's kind of what I was looking for. Um, so I, I, I ended up kind of going to this church and and enjoying it and making friends there and liking the people there and in some ways finding it more hospitable than I did like secular capitalism and just the kind of mainstream culture of, of my own country. And I ended up like, I did actually end up, I mean, I really struggled with intellectual doubts about, about Christianity, not least the kind of Christianity that we were taught in that church, which was kind of, you could, you know, just not very intellectually deep. But just so that our listeners know, we're talking about full on what sounded like born again, charismatic Christianity, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was fine with that. I was fine with the ecstatic part of it. It was the intellectual part of it that didn't ultimately satisfy me. Yeah. So why don't you actually t- talk about that part? Because you did have a real ecstatic experience there uh, or two. That that part was as promised. But then at the same time, they asked for too much belief and things that you couldn't do. Um, so yeah. that this the story of your disillusionment as well. Sure. Well, so after, you know, I, I, I kind of was wondering, I, I, I liked the community and I liked the kind of the, the the collective worship and the music and that kind of stuff. Whenever I opened the Bible, I didn't really like that. But I liked the kind of I liked the people and I liked the ritual and I liked the that kind of stuff. And I liked the community. But I was was struggling with it. And eventually I, I went I, I went to a. Um, a kind of very charismatic little church in Wales, in the countryside in Wales. And I went to their three-day retreat. And it was basically, let's say, about 200 hardcore charismatic Christians, most of them in their 50s and 60s, and me. <laughs> and I basically, by the, by the kind of third day of this, I I had a kind of ecstatic experience it was a very full-bodied kind of thing where I felt like energy go into me and 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 really like take my breath away, um, and and I came away from that thinking right there we go that's it that's um, I, you know I'm 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 a Christian that's 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 all the proof I need. In some ways, that's that's a kind of attitude that's developed in Protestant Christianity since the 18th century, where spiritual or ecstatic experiences are taken as proof of your theology as proof that God loves you or that you're going to heaven or that your particular brand of Christianity is true. And I suppose now looking back on it, I I take it more as like within certain conditions, cultural and psychological, you might well have some kind of ecstatic experience, but that doesn't necessarily prove anything in particular about the nature of the universe or the nature of reality or God. And it's not even necessarily a good thing, you know, unless it changes you in good ways. And in my in, in my case, I don't think, you know, I I, I think it, it was like more like a spiritual high, which then, you know, dribbled away over, over the weeks afterwards. And I still had um, major intellectual problems with Christianity and um, and they didn't go away. You know, after the high had died down, I still had these doubts. And so having announced that I was a, a 
you know, I'd become a Christian. About a year later, I was like, God, I, I don't think I am a Christian. Uh, and so that was a pretty like uh, confusing stage of 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 this journey. Yeah. So what I find really interesting about this is, you know, you 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 go into this, you know, born again Christian place. You you really give into it. You have the ecstatic experience, and it feels amazing. And you're willing to make some pretty big changes to your identity because of it. Like the transformative power of of an ecstatic experience is really, really real. Yeah, um, I didn't really make that major changes to my identity. I mean, I was a I was a theist before. I always believed in God. I guess the change is saying you're a Christian, which is, um, you know, slightly below saying you're a pedophile in British culture. Like it's uh, it, it, it's it's a kind of it's a it's a shocking thing to say. And I and I kind of felt, well, why should it be? Why should that be um, any weirder than saying you're into like shamanism or into Tibetan Buddhism or, or you know, you're into Kundalini yoga? Why do we have this, you know, horror of Christianity in British culture? I can more understand American non-Christians having a horror of Christianity because you live in a culture where 70 percent still go to church and you have I mean, Christianity is in some ways and particularly born again Christianity is quite a toxic influence on your culture and your politics. But in Britain, I'm like, why, why are we, you know, I, I guess I, I connect in Britain, our fear and hostility to transcendence. I, it, it's, it's also connected to a kind of uh, a fear and hostility towards Christianity. So I was, I mean, so yeah, I, I kind of, I'd said like, I, I'm a Christian and that was shocking to some people, but I hadn't massively changed my identity. I guess I'm looking at it from like the rational perspective of, you know, you or you wrote a book about Greek philosophy, the rational yeah. sort of yeah, world. But and... Greek philosophy, they were rational, but they weren't only rational. They, they didn't think that was all there was. They were all like initiates in mystery cults, uh, like Aristotle thought that a healthy society should also have like both rational philosophy and ecstatic cults in it if it was going to be healthy. Like Plato really had a place for like, you know, ecstatic experience. I think that's more a, a kind of uh, a result of the Enlightenment, the idea that you should be rational and that's all you should be. And there's no other aspects, uh, you know, value to human nature. Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to get at here that I'm really interested in is one, I 100% agree with you. We need ecstatic experience in our life. It's like part of our birthright as human beings, part of just what we crave. And we also need healthy ways to do it because it can be dangerous. You know, someone can give you an ecstatic experience and then say, believe this whole bill of goods that might be full of delusions. You know, living in New York, like I do, um, you know, in kind of a gay community, I, I meet all the young men and women that have been disowned from these kinds of households. Um, right. You know, they might call them runaway teenagers, but it's not really that they ran away. They were like exiled from their communities and the yeah. intense harm that causes. And, right. you know, I myself seek ecstatic experiences and love them. Yeah. And I kind of get it. Like if I was going to be a Christian, I'd want to speak in tongues. I'd want to yeah. shake. I'd want to have that release. Yeah. But how do we do this without going a little bit crazy or believing delusions? I feel like that's really yeah. um, 
one of the big stories of your book is like, yes, you are going to want this. Here's some of the exploration I've done and maybe some yeah. ideas of how to do it safely. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And and I guess part of it is, uh, I mean, in some ways, the main conclusion I came to in the book is like equanimity towards these experiences. Like they just happen, I would say, naturally along if if you're like engaged in spiritual practices. And even sometimes if you're not, they just naturally happen. Uh, and the two mistakes we can make are aversion to them, which is like, you know, just terror of losing control and terror of going beyond your ordinary ego and i think that's a great pity because they're pointing us to something within our something they're telling us something important about the nature of identity but the other risk you can get is over attachment to them where you just kind of cling on to them and use these experiences to prove that you're special or that your community is special um uh, you know and you end up craving them um and uh, yeah i mean so the what, what I'm trying to suggest in the book is just like equanimity. That's the middle path where these things happen and they're kind of they're, they're important. And they're nothing to be afraid of, but don't get too hung up on them either. Hey, Ian, how's it going? Hey, Hansa, I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, you ready to take a little break uh, from our conversation for a quote? I love our little breaks. Absolutely. What's, what's the quote you have for us today? All right. This is Doris Lessing. Whatever you're meant to do, do it now. The conditions are always impossible. Wow. I love her so much. Anyone who dares to take on like, and uses, has the, the audacity to use the word impossible and then to try to minimize it, these are, these are good people. Uh, with the limited time that we have on uh, on planet Earth and in this universe, we shouldn't ever discount anything as being impossible. Yeah, it's just one of those big quotes. Today we get a big quote. There we go. Sometimes they're bite-sized. Sometimes they're they're monstrous. But um, you know, sometimes they're of, fun. Um, sometimes yeah. they'll change your life. Okay, what what were you saying, Ian? Well, you know, Hansa. Speaking of of ways that would would change our life, you know. Maybe you should tell our listeners a little bit about the fun things they could find at WeCroak.com. They can find links to news articles about the WeCroak platform. They can find um, a submission page where they can if, submit their own quotes to be in our app if they've come across in their reading something that is wise about death or impermanence or just happens to have the word maggots in it. That That's one that we usually like. Um, and we've done a bunch of those in the past. So thank you for, for submitting those. I'm not, I'm not sure about the maggots, but we've certainly done a lot of those. There's a lot of quotes with the word maggots in, in the quote. It's true. Um, I counted once. It's, it's a lot. Oh, jeez. They can also find our Patreon page, right? Right. And there's also a link to our Patreon page. So if you like the podcast and what we're doing with the app, you can support us because uh, we want to keep uh, spending lots of time on this project. We really appreciate all of your support for these many months. If you're a longtime contributor or the only thing better is uh, folks that are just getting on board and discovering the whole WeCroak universe for the first time. So welcome. And we're so happy to have you. Yeah. And without further ado, back to the conversation.
So uh, in your book, you explore a lot of other sort of fun avenues for seeking the ecstatic. You know, you talk about art, and I thought maybe a fun place to go next would be uh, music, rock and roll, dance. Mm -hmm. um, talk a little bit about some of your what you found in that research and also in those rock concerts. Yeah, uh, so I was interested in the alternative ways that people can find ecstatic experience if they're not going to church. And of course, the arts has been one of the big kind of substitutes um, in, in European culture um, for the decline of the church. So you see that in Romanticism, where, I mean, one critic called romantic poetry spilt religion. So people like Wordsworth and Coleridge, they're kind of like alternative priests, alternative mystics outside of the Christian church, but they're still having these kinds of ecstatic experiences. And through their art, they're giving other people a, a, a kind of window uh, to these kinds of mystical type experiences. And, and no art is more powerful for that, I would say, than um, the music and dancing. And so one of the things I look at in the book, in, in this chapter, is um, how rock and roll kind of came out of the Pentecostal church. So uh, a lot of the early pioneers of rock and roll were Pentecostalists uh, or connected to Pentecostalism in some way, from Al Green to James Brown to Ray Charles to um, Elvis Presley and Tina Turner and B.B. King. Um, and a lot of these kind of pioneers of rock and roll, they took the, the intense emotionality of Pentecostalism and even some of the kind of physical aspects of it like in the pentecostal church you would shake when the holy spirit comes upon you and rock and roll is a bit like that as well if you think of like elvis presley's dance um so they took that whole kind of pentecostal ecstasy and they took it out of the church and they secularized it and sexualized it and gave a means for agnostic uh, middle-class white kids to kind of to kind of go to church without signing up for Christian dogma. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons rock and roll was so in, such an incredibly powerful cultural force, um, as was like jazz and swing and, and rave. I mean, these were, they were kind of, they, so much of it goes back to the church um, and, to, and to like, um, you know, gospel. And um, so I, I, I guess, that was my my explanation for why for the power of rock and roll is that um, I mean, just just on the bus on the way here, I saw in the paper like Childish Gambino had just done a gig in London and he'd said to the audience, like, put away your phones. We're in church. And then the next page was a story about how Kanye West has now started holding services <laughs> with a full gospel choir. And these are examples of the close link between like pop music and the church and 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 that that kind of subterranean link between the two. Have you and have you you made yeah, a on. strong case, I thought, that you know, a lot of ecstasy comes down to technique, you know, that there are ways that humans interact, you know, with mm. some music, movement, kind of like a stage, light, all yeah. these things. And you can create these experiences in the right set and settings mm. with nothing more than a performer, some music, some light. Yeah. And that those techniques were known, you know, to certain, you know, uh, sects and religions and that rock and roll sort of took those techniques and created art with them instead. Right. 
yeah, I mean, if you think about, you know, someone like David Bowie, he's almost consciously creating a religious ritual uh, and a spectacle. Uh, he, he's constantly see, consciously seeing um, the rock star as a kind of cross, something between a priest, a shaman, and a kind of fascist leader. That that that's that's kind of Ziggy Stardust. Um, so yeah, they, I mean they've definitely taken a lot of the the, the tropes or the techniques uh, of the church um, and and a ritual and spectacle and 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 use it in the audience. But it's so so there are these kind of techniques that one can use to try to get the audience to a transcendent place, but it's never totally predictable. Like it's never quite like if you do A, B, and C, then you'll lead to get get to D. I mean, there's there's in some ways like um, let's say you develop a new technology which really like shocks people, uh, and 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 there's something new and amazing about it, like the electric guitar or like the Roland 303, which was the machine that a lot of acid house uh, used. And so you create this new technology and everyone's like, wow, and it kind of really gets them going. But then, and then it becomes familiar and then it kind of slightly loses its power to, to like shock us. And, and you'll notice songs, you know, like one song will be a massive hit and will drive people crazy. And then it just, it just spawns a host of imitators and it kind of becomes hackneyed and yesterday's ecstatic experiences today's hackneyed uh, commercial formula and you see that in electronic dance music now where it, it it just it's so kind of commercial in a way that um it to me it's not even very ecstatic the kind of the whole build up and then break and then the drop i mean it's just it's quite wearied do you know um, well, so people often listen to that music and actually take ecstasy in order for that music to work on them. Well, yeah, I think with with a lot of modern EDM, you need to have, be on some pretty good ecstasy because uh, <laughs> because it, it's it's so boring. Sounds like it's not on your playlist. I don't no, know. I've had some pretty amazing because <laughs> dance can be ecstatic I, inducing. I, I love I love electronic dance music. I guess I'm talking about stuff in the charts now. But no, I, I yeah, I love I love kind of I, I love soulful electronic dance music. So uh, you, yeah, you even went to like a five rhythms class, which is just so people know, like electronic dance music, where you're barefoot, not talking, cycling through five different rhythms and sustained yeah. emotion all the time, in order to have a sort of ecstatic experience. Uh, yeah, have you ever done that? I've, I've actually done in that one a lot. I really like dance and take yeah. a lot of dance classes. Uh, yeah, good. Just because I think it's fun. Uh, I'm just yeah. curious about your experience with that and whether you thought, you know, did that work for you to have an ecstatic experience, what you thought? Um, no, but I maybe I should try it again. Like, um, I mean, first of all, I guess, you know, and maybe this is a flaw in the whole approach of my book, but I don't think you can necessarily go to five rhythms and say, right, tonight I'm going to have an ecstatic experience. Uh, I mean, you can't go to like the movies and say, right, I'm going to have an ecstatic experience. It, like I said, it's a little bit unpredictable, isn't it? Um, it's like saying today I'm just going to be really happy. I mean, if you if you have that attitude, you're probably not going to be happy that day. And I, I think if you're if you're kind of 
you know, so I was exploring these things and writing about them, but I wasn't going to each one of these things going, right, okay, give me the ecstasy. But, <laughs> but, cool. but I mean, but I mean, I, I was aware that some of my friends, they spoke about five rhythms and about ecstatic dance in these glowing terms and said, oh, this is incredible and it's better than MDMA. And, and so I went along and um, I don't know, I guess, I, I mean, I was just a bit English and inhibited about it, I think. I was unable to let go of my inhibitions. Um, uh, so I was unable to get outside of myself and outside of my, um, you know, self-consciousness. I, uh, maybe it made me aware of the extent to which I have relied on booze or drugs to lose myself in dance. Um, and in that situation, you know, and in a very English way, I wasn't sure about the etiquette of the social interaction. <laughs> you know, like, uh, uh, am I dancing with you now? Are we? Are we? Is that, is that what's happening? Uh, you know, <laughs> this kind of stuff. So I was like, uh, if you can imagine, like, you know, Larry David or Woody Allen uh, at an ecstatic dance thing, I was a bit like that. It just, it just, it, it kind of. It, it, it made me feel like awkward. Um, I do love dancing and I don't get enough of it in my life. So maybe I need to go back and try it again. Yeah, for, for me, at least, dance is probably my go-to for ecstatic mm. experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because I've done a lot of it over the years. It started actually with this Afro-Caribbean dance class I used to go to yeah. religiously every Saturday. Yeah. Um, and then you dance in these like lines and there's these yeah. old movements. But then in the middle and at the end, people kind of circle up and then just like you jump into the yeah. circle. Yeah. Um, and people are sort of like, you know, giving you their energy and you just dance a little bit. And every that once in a while, great. things things would happen in that circle uh, where people would literally like fall over, have the full like shakes and like, you know, like convulse <laughs> kind of thing. It was like an intense thing. But the teacher was amazing. She could hold that. Um, and just yeah. once, and maybe like the year and a half, two years, it happened to me when I jumped in, which I didn't every Saturday. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, and of course, you know, it's not really like my culture. It just, it just happened, you know, like the spirit of that, what was happening there grabbed me and like ah. fell and, uh, and, like, okay, so... pulled you and like the whole, whole thing. And, and it was, you went into a kind of trance state. Oh yeah. Like yeah. not in control of my movements or body like the full thing. So from then I've explored a lot of dance kind of stuff, kind of mm. looking for that again. And usually it's not ever that intense. Mm. Um, but I like five rhythms. I've had full on, like not every time, but um, like enough level where I'm having like hallucinogenic experiences of like yeah. lights or something in the, at the end of yeah. this dance experience and in a very altered state. So it works. It yeah. definitely works. Not every time to that degree. But right. often enough that I know I can really go there. And if I give myself fully, like, let go and have yeah. intense. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm um, I'm a kind of inhibited intellectual. And that was part of this book, really, was trying to challenge myself and kind of grow and go beyond my my comfort zone. And my comfort zone is probably like thoughts and words. So I very I very much relate to uh, Aldous Huxley, who I'm researching now, and he was a similar psychological type. He was kind of uptight English um, intellectual, and he 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 was drawn to this kind of domain of experience because he was trying to go beyond that, trying to go beyond his intellectualism. He talked about 
the non-verbal humanities and like he was very into like connecting to your body um and and things like that um so yeah dance was super important to me when i was younger so was playing the drums that was a real way for me uh, i mean like i used to play the, the drums when i had like mild depression and and the more depressed i was the better i would play the drums because it would really be cathartic it would really help me to kind of I could just feel this kind of difference in my mind and in my body after drumming. It was just like a reset. Uh, and it, it just felt like a release. It really did. And nowadays I don't play the drums so much uh, and I don't dance so much. I kind of, I get some of that from playing sport. And I, you know, of course you don't have a full on trance experience, but like you do get back into your body uh, and you can get into a kind of flow state like flow state is kind of like very mild ecstatic experience. So um, yeah, I, I I feel very good after after playing tennis because it's got me back into my body. But yeah, I'll definitely go and try f uh, five rhythms again uh, for sure. And I think you know what though, I think if I was listening to this, I, I and, and I was listening to me talk, I'd be thinking like, okay, so you went and tried this and you got that ecstatic experience, then you went and tried that, and it's kind of like a shopping list of ecstasy. And that's fine. But I, I, if I was listening, I'd be. I want to know what's the, what's the what's the point of these things? You know, is it telling us anything interesting about the self or about the nature of reality? And is it making us better people? So I don't know. Like, what do you think about that, Hansel? Like, do you think that that kind of experience sounded very powerful? And did it did it change you? Or do these experiences, in your experience, change you uh, for the better? That's a really good question. I'm very curious if your reply too. Um, you know, I think I find those kinds of experiences, especially when I pursue them in a quote unquote one of the healthier ways, you know, mm. of like moving my body. There's no hangover, like mm. there's no like dogma I have to believe. The worst thing that can happen is you know, maybe I hurt my body, which I haven't done. And I can wake up the next day after having an experience like that and have just a week of afterglow of just feeling like mm. whatever stress mm -hmm. or thing that has me coiled up, I've mm. let it go and I'm yeah. fine. And that's a valuable experience. It helps me get through life. So Absolutely. just on that sort yeah. of self-care kind of way, it's valuable. Yeah. Now, does it tell me something about the universe that's real? I have no idea. Like, let's, mm. let's actually go into your section about psychedelics because there, mm. of course, you can see the craziest things. And I'm, I'm sure mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about some of yours. And it doesn't necessarily mean that what we're seeing is like real, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> you, um, I think uh, maybe there was a section in your book, I'm trying to remember correctly, where you were talking about like, you know, people encountering elves or aliens or weird creatures in their psychedelic trips and really having a conversation about, are those real? And if so, how? <laughs> and it sounds bonkers, right? And I'm not convinced... <laughs> That's real. And I'm wondering what you think. Yeah. I mean, I went to this big, big psychedelic conference in London called Breaking Convention. Uh, and there was a panel on on elves that people often see on DMT. And, you know, it was like, why do people often see elves? And in the words of Terence McKenna, uh, you get elves. Everyone does. And and so this panel asked the audience, uh, do you think the elves are real? And And I think most of the audience did think they were real. But um, as in you were genuinely encountering uh, kind of independently existing entities. But um, it's a whole interesting question to me, like the validity of psychedelic experiences. 
in some ways you can understand them in I guess secular terms as they shake up your your habitual ego and create um, a space for change so this is how um, a scientist at Imperial College kind of describes it they give you a, a temporary experience of ego dissolution so we can be very stuck in habitual um, habits of thinking and behaving like stuck in the habit of being depressed say or being an addict and um, psychedelics uh, can kind of literally gives you the experience of dissolving your ego and you go to this much more fluid state and in that fluid state people can sometimes just make different choices instead of always going down the same neural pathway that they've gone down for the last 20 years they can you know they can uh, open up to a different kind of reality where they're less conditioned by their habits uh, for a space of time um, so that's why they can apparently be helpful for things like helping people overcome um, addiction and depression and so on. So that you can understand in purely secular terms. But then sometimes people also have um, spiritual or mystical type uh, insights or encounters on psychedelics. Like, for example, feeling uh, one with the universe or feeling that your consciousness is connected to the consciousness of all things or feeling like Aldous Huxley takes LSD and decides that love is the is the central cosmic fact. Uh, and he decides, you know, like, or Alan Watts, who, who takes um, psychedelics and, and comes away with a sense of like cosmic joy, a sense that everything's okay in the, in the universe. So that's a, like a, um, that's a claim about the nature of reality, isn't it? And, and those insights can sometimes be very healing for people. So, for example, at Johns Hopkins, they did a trial for people with um, life-threatening cancer. Uh, and unsurprisingly, they, they, a lot of them had uh, depression and anxiety because they were, um, they were bummed out about dying. And so they gave these people um, uh, a dose of, I think it was LSD, and, and, and it, it reduced a lot of their anxiety and depression. And um, partly it was because it helped them to accept the death of their ego, but also because it gave them a sense that maybe there's something within them that doesn't die. Maybe there's some kind of higher consciousness that they're somehow connected to. Might be in an impersonal way, might not be a personal immortality, but there's some kind of greater consciousness. So in that instance, it was a kind of spiritual insight that led to the to some extent led to the decline in anxiety and depression you know and so that that begs an interesting question about you know what should the attitude of of psychedelic scientists be to those kinds of spiritual experiences or mystical experiences that people have on psychedelics you know should they uh, should they just treat them as placebo um should they encourage those kinds of beliefs or is that you know even if they don't fit with conventional materialist understandings so yeah that's 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 just an interesting question for the and, field and what's your what, what's your recommendation there what do you think uh, i think that let's say that we legalize psychedelics for therapy i think that's probably going to happen um, i would say that a psychedelic clinic should remain open and kind of pluralist about the different ways people make sense of their psychedelic experiences and like basically kind of sympathetic agnostic 
uh, and to try to try to help them, you know, focus on on healing and on on change in their personality and in their life whilst being kind of open and kind of shrugging about these more ultimate questions, because who knows? That would be my that would be my, you know, and what we've seen is that some of these psychedelic laboratories, they tend to kind of take theological positions on the nature of people's experiences. So the Johns Hopkins laboratory says, you know, psychedelics lead to mystical experiences. And it also, in some of the early trials, it actually used a mystical experience questionnaire to kind of rank people's mystical experiences. Um, and then like if they had pure, not, you know, experiences of non-dual consciousness, that would be classified as a kind of complete mystical experience. Whilst if they had a more dualist experience of encountering like God in some form or encountering entities, that would be considered a kind of less complete mystical experience. So that's the kind of theology, right? And that theology very much comes from like Aldous Huxley and, and, and so on. On the other side of the Atlantic, there's a famous psychedelic lab at Imperial College. And they've said, you know, psychedelics should be interpreted in purely materialist ways. It's just ego dissolution, mystical experiences or any idea of connection to the all or to the divine or to the divine. That's like primitive magical thinking and shouldn't be encouraged. Um, so they have their own theology. And I, I think, you know, both these positions are, would be incorrect in a, in a medical clinic. I think they need to try and just create a kind of safe, open space and then let people make up their own minds about the ultimate uh, questions or, or, or the nature of the things that they're encountering. All right. So let's just break this down a little bit. So you decide, you know, to get on the, let's say, ayahuasca bandwagon and try a ritual with that and or another one of these psychedelic therapies or um go out on your own and you meet an elf and you have a mm, long conversation yeah. with said elf which i laugh at it because i don't take too much but I, that has happened to me like for some reason people see elves on these things and it's true like i don't know why but you saw, what do you yeah, what do you on. what do you make of that experience like you meet this elf you feel much better about life but you spent a couple hours talking to um a magical creature of dubious validity how do you how do you how do you come back to life and not like be totally deluded and crazy after that experience well i've had that experience as well yeah i went to an ayahuasca retreat in 2017 and i definitely had the sense of encountering something i'm not just uh, of, of encountering some kind of intelligence greater than my own that wasn't me exactly though it was uh it was kind of and it but i guess i just didn't get hung up on the nature of the it uh because i, I it was beyond my comprehension and i was more there to like try and heal and grow as a human being and and this superior intelligence gave me information that I found useful in that kind of healing and learning process. I think if 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 this if this kind of intelligence or this elf or whatever or this nature spirit or this you know aspect of consciousness had appeared to me and said uh, go and go and stab everyone else in the room, um, I I hope I would have said 
no, I'm not going to do that. You know, <laughs> that I wouldn't like, I, I, I think we, in other words, like we can't tell what, where this information is coming from. We, we don't know like if there really is an elf or is it, or if it's just an aspect of your consciousness, that is a question without, you know, without a bottom as it were, but we can assess, is this uh, information helpful and useful to me? And you assess that both in the moment and in the days and weeks afterwards. Do, you know, does the stuff that I got from my ayahuasca retreat, is it still helpful to me now, like two years later? Uh, and it is. So I, I still don't know what was going on exactly in that experience. I still don't know if it was my subconscious or if it was some kind of genuine, like, higher intelligence. And if, and if it was a higher intelligence... Uh, what was it? Was it like aliens? Was it God? Was it a nature spirit? No idea. Absolutely no idea. Um, all, all I can do is is, is assess whether, whether it was um, helpful to me. But the other thing that it does tell us, it does tell us something about the nature of the self, doesn't it? So I, I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm not quite sure about the nature of ultimate cosmic reality, but it does tell us something about the nature of the self. And part of it is that there does seem to be healing wisdom in our subconscious. So I don't know about what you think, but to me, psychedelics tend to support the, uh, the psychological ideas of people like Carl Jung and William James and um, Frederick Myers and Stanislav Grof, who all claim that there's a kind of, there's a wisdom in our subconscious uh, and, and a healing power in our subconscious, which we're not usually aware of and that we're often sometimes a bit kind of cut off from or alienated from and that one of the merits of, of ecstatic experiences including psychedelics is it can open us up to this actually superior kind of wisdom and healing power within our subconscious and we may experience that you know as a kind of vision or we may experience that as as a as a wise figure that we encounter so that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Um, that I, I, and I don't know if you agree with that, but that, that's one thing I've taken away from it, that it gives us a glimpse into this bigger self that we're usually not aware of and that there is some bonkers stuff down there uh, and not everything in that, in that deeper self is wise. So you, you, need, you very much need discrimination to be able to sort the good stuff from the bad stuff. But there is some really good stuff down there. There's like inspiration there's healing what we generally just write off as the placebo response but really what that is the heat is the healing power of the subconscious and there's also stuff like telepathy I, I don't know if you've ever had like experiences of uh, telepathy on psychedelics or synchronicity um, but I think I think a lot of people who you know tried psychedelics or or, or got into like deep contemplative practice would then get unusual experiences of telepathy and synchronicity. And those are interesting because they just, they suggest something about the connection of our consciousness to other people's consciousness uh, and, and to kind of causality. And that's all they are. They're all, that's, that's the, as far as I can go as a kind of someone who's also a rational skeptic. I, all these, I, I take from these experiences just the suggestion that maybe there's something bigger going on. But what do you think? Oh, it's such a big topic. Because um, <laughs> I have also had these experiences and found them very healing and important. What, and what also kind of experiences? 
All right, I'll share one just so that we're not up out in the abstract. Around like seven or eight years ago, I did like a full-on ayahuasca ceremony with a shaman from Peru and, you know, the whole whole thing. So it's like a dark room, rattling, singing, very safe space, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. You can go deep, you throw up. It's not particularly pleasant, but, you know, it's a very deep psychedelic experience, full like body dysmorphia, like I didn't have a body part of the time or might have a different body or, you know, and in the mm. course of this deep thing, you know, I met, you know, this jungle goddess, you know, hello, mm. she wasn't an elf, but she, mm. you know, is of like real 3D existence in the world is, you know, not certain to me even now. Yeah. And I was asking her all these questions. And um, one of the questions I asked her was about poetry, because it's this you know, it was a major passion of mine at the time and still is. And all of a sudden, I am no longer in that room anymore. I am deep in the ocean. And I am in the body of like a several ton humpback whale wow. swimming. And I kind of like ask out into the, the void. And she's somewhere like not, I can't see her, but I know she's present. And I'm like, okay, I ask you a question about poetry. Why am I in the body of this whale? Why am I in the ocean? What's going on? Mm. And she's like, listen and all of a sudden i start listening and i hear whales singing and through the magic of being on psychedelics i felt like i could understand everything they said and they were like you know how like there's this like cliche that eskimos can have 50 words for snow mm. uh, it was like that but about water and currents and depth and like long journeys through mm. like nebulous passageways and love of your pod and like all this sort of like and she's just like look whales are just as smart as you are they live like 80 years and they do nothing all day but eat krill and compose and sing poetry <laughs> like you want to hear the best poetry on the planet you are right now mm, and that's wow. what i spent the next couple of hours doing is just listening that um, sounds amazing and it was a peak life experience to be told to be truth be told i mean the yeah. poetry i heard and I, yeah. I can't really, I can't translate it because there were so many words and concepts yeah. and feelings that are just, you know, made for whales, not for people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that I felt like I understood on that journey. And yeah. um, it taught me something really deep about the natural world and how big it is and, you know, the limited yeah. perspective of not only me, but humanity and, mm. you know, just how things could be. Otherwise, it was a major opening experience. Yeah. Um, and... There was a part of me that felt like there's no way I could have come up with that. You know, there mm. has to be a validity to this outside voice because simply that genius is well beyond me. Mm. Um, and, you know, at the same time, years later, thinking back on it, you know, I still don't have any good answers. I just mm. know it was helpful to yeah. have that experience. Yeah. And what I'm kind of getting from this conversation and and it's good because it had always really bothered me because, you know, I've had these experiences, but I've also met people that have really gone off the deep end, mm. um, like chattering about, you know, paranoid ideas about aliens or this or that mm. um, because of these experiences. And it's like terrifying. Like, I don't want to become like that and like lose yeah. my and it feels like the polarity is like the more you lean into ecstatic experience, the more you also have to lean into the rational and the like the Apollonian sort of structured experience in order to evaluate yeah. And sort of safely let go of, you know, that the subconscious is weird and full of junk, but also hold on to these sort of treasures that can come out of um, yes. experience yes. yourself I, strong 
on both sides. Absolutely. Um, I've just been reading this morning a biography of Abraham Maslow, kind of father of transpersonal psychology. And and he, he you know he was um a kind of real mental figure to Esselin. Have you heard of Esselin? You probably know do you know about Esselin? Like the um the, the community kind of ca- out in California? Exactly. Um the kind of you know, very influential human potential hippie personal development commune uh, in Big Sur in California. And they developed a lot of these, a lot of these transpersonal ecstatic techniques came like ecstatic, like five rhythms came from Essendon uh, and, you know, psychedelic therapy and encounter sessions and this kind of stuff. And he went there and he said, like, you can't, he warned them, you can't junk the, 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 the rational and the intellectual as well. You can't just have a focus on the experiential. And he said, why isn't there a library at Esalen? You know, why is there all this focus? So in some ways, what happened in the 60s counterculture was initially you had you had prophets of it, like Aldous Huxley or Alan Watts, and they were about balancing the Apollonian and the Dionysian. But then in the counterculture, it just became it kind of became anti-science and irrational and all just kind of Dionysian. So there was the loss of that balance. And then there was a swing back, and I think our culture became too Apollinian and afraid of these kind of experiences. So, yeah, Aldous Huxley always used to say you've got to have the best of both worlds, the best of like, a, you know, sceptical, empirical uh, rationalism, uh, but also like, you know, not be afraid to explore. And I, I also think like by the end of every book, I always see the limits of it and kind of go beyond it. And like by the end of, you know, this book on, on ecstatic experiences, and certainly after going on this ayahuasca retreat, which ended up being quite an interesting, full on turbulent experience, I no longer have such a hunger for these kinds of experiences. I think in a way I was trying to, first of all, like know the nature of reality. Like, is there a God? And if so, how do I connect with it? And now I'm a bit more relaxed about that. Like, you know, I have some sense of the nature of reality, but I kind of think the main thing is to just get on and and and, and practice in this life and practice trying to be a kinder person. So so I have less of that kind of anxious need to know the nature of reality. So that's one thing. And I guess, yeah, I have less of a kind of just a hunger for these kinds of intense experiences as well. And I can see that it can be a bit unhealthy to chase them so yeah these kind of experiences happen but don't make them don't make too big a deal of it it definitely shouldn't be like the center of your spiritual life like when was my last full-on whiz-bang adventure that's not the point i guess that shouldn't be the goal so yeah they 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 they, they happen and and you shouldn't be afraid of them but they're not the be-all and end-all i think the goal is to be a kinder wiser person and these kinds of experiences can even be an obstacle to that if you approach them in the wrong way if you if you if you if you get overly uh, proud about having them, do you know what I mean? If you get if you get ego inflated, if you start feeling that you're special because you you know you've smoked DMT fifty times and the and the, the you know the old lady on the on the bus next to you she's she, you know she's barely alive because you know she's never had any full ecstatic experience like you have, then it's then it's actually been harmful for you because it's made you an, more arrogant and more of a more of a dick. I have met, met some of those people, and I agree. 
<laughs> I, I, I would say, yeah, these things happen. You're going to want to have some. Like, it, sometimes I just need to dance, for example. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. need to go, like, have crazy hallucinogens, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I need to dance. I need something. Yeah, yeah. You need, and, to refresh. you need to refresh sometime, don't you? But having had those some of those experiences, you know, I, I'm kind of resigned to that. I'm not going to understand the true nature of the universe today yeah. or anytime soon yeah. and that's okay because I, I get the point like I've had the experiences and I'm trying to be a kinder wiser person and that's the test and that's the only test and however whatever you need to get there whether it's philosophical rules or you've yeah. had a, an experience of oneness either spontaneous or through one of these that that gets you toward that is like, yeah is the point yeah but the, but you're right that, that they are valuable I mean like there was an interesting study by um, a Swiss uh, scientist called Milan Schneidegger, who's uh, he did a I think it was a mushroom magic mushroom retreat um, with some uh, a group of kind of ordinary people and a group of uh, experienced long term meditators, uh, and the long term meditators um, they had they reported more mystical experiences on the mushrooms and they were better able to kind of navigate that experience through their meditative training. But they also reported that their meditative training after the retreat was kind of enhanced and more satisfying. I think that's interesting, the, the kind of relationship between like the daily ethical practice and these occasional ecstatic experiences. Like I, I think there can be a kind of healthy relationship between them where you, you, know, you occasionally have one of these more immersive experiences like of, of, of ego dissolution and they just refresh you because otherwise you know it, it can be a bit of a slog right the spiritual journey you're just like you know doing your cognitive therapy or doing your mindfulness practice and you know you're not sure if you're really getting anywhere and so I, I, I was definitely I came away from this ayahuasca experience really seeing the value of meditation because what little meditative experience I had and training I had was really helpful to me in these highly altered states. Like there was a, a time like you where I went completely out of my body, didn't know where I was, forgot my name, all of that. And it was it was an experience of dread. But even there, I was able to go, OK, just accept it and remember that it will pass. So like that training was in, so instilled in me that it even worked in that very altered state. And that gives me encouragement that m maybe this, this kind of training also works after death, <laughs> you know, in the bardo of, I mean, it, which I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm open to that possibility. That's my kind of working hypothesis that there is some kind of reincarnation set up as unlikely as that sounds. I guess what I'm saying is that kind of like daily practice, I, I really came away from that experience seeing the value of daily practice. Yeah, and that's kind of where your book kind of takes us in the end, too, is you have these sort of softer sides of ecstasy, which are contemplation, you know, meditation retreats and deep meditation, as well as just, you know, walking in nature mm. and feeling connected to that sublime, like you're on a hike and you feel mm. all of a sudden that one. And I was wondering, yeah, I guess it sounds like that maybe where these sort of intense experience leads you to are sort of. Mm. these sort of softer ones i don't know what, what what do you think about that um i don't know i mean like i'm i'm editing a book at the moment about uh spiritual emergencies which is a phrase that 
Stanislav Grof and his wife came up with, two psychologists. And spiritual emergencies are like awakening experiences that are that are quite messy and quite full on. And everyone in this book, who they're, when they're talking about their spiritual experiences, they often say, I was really seeking ecstasy. And then I found it. And now I'm not really seeking it anymore. Because <laughs> you know? cause it, it's like, you know, there's, a, there's this phrase in the Bible, it is a terrible and fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And and it's a bit like when you've had a full on experience, like, you know, you know, you're not in a rush to have another one. Um, so um, so I guess there's that kind of thing. But also, I just think everything just depends on the quality of the attention you bring to it. The most ordinary, banal moment can be quite a magical moment if you just bring a certain quality of attention to it. So that's kind of one thing, like the kind of the interesting and extraordinariness of the ordinary. That's interesting. And I also think like the, the habitual practice of kindness does change your sense of reality as well. Like I do think like it, it does thin the walls of your ego. That's what I hope. And then with, when you have thinner walls of ego, like reality feels different. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, it's it's getting to, you know, one of those, like, what is the point of life places? It's to mm-hmm. not be an arrogant dick and have an inflated self-ego. It's to be kind and to have a yeah. sense of a little bit of meaning and purpose and put one yeah. foot in front of the other and drop down into your day. And so that those little soft moments of, like, you're walking through the park or you're yeah. eating a bowl of cereal can be sweet, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and and I think also, like, as we practice, like, being more present and being kinder, I do think that it changes our sense of reality and the sense of giving us this sense of connection to um, to others. I just think it kind of hints at a mystery. And it still is a mystery to me, who we are and how we're connected to each other. I think that's, I guess that's, that's, to me, like, the adventure. And I no longer feel like I have to desperately find out the answer to that through you know flashing lights full-on ecstatic experiences but it's I still I'm still just interested in that mystery and I feel that like like kindness and 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 love are just as much part of that like like smiling at people on the bus or something like that or I I just think it's interesting like and I, and I get this a lot when I listen to Jack Cornfield uh teach and 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 he, he just talks about that kind of um like the mystery and I think that on life we're, you know, it's not just a slog of like, oh, I've got to meditate this morning and then I've got to do my gratitude journal and then I've got to do my cognitive therapy. But it's 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 also like it's a, it's an open ended mystery as well. A journey like to discover the nature of who we are and that possibly we are much more than we think we are. And that, that's what I think wisdom traditions are kind of hinting at. And and I I guess I think that the 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 practice of kindness opens up that mystery for us, uh, and I guess I guess that's that's where I've got to uh, at the moment. Though you know I'm still a, quite a self-contained, inhibited uh, intellectual, so I'm a I'm a I'm a beginner in in these matters. But I I that's where I'm at now. I'm, I'm interested in those kinds of things, the, the little moments of kindness and how they thin the walls of our ego and, and open up the possibility of us being something greater than what we think we are. 
Well, I actually think that is the perfect note to thank you and end on. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners, uh, first of all, the names of your books and the best way to sort of find you online as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so the first one about Greek philosophy, and particularly Stoicism, is called Philosophy for Life and Other Dan- Dangerous Situations. Uh, the second one is called The Art of Losing Control. I've got two books coming out this year, a little one about this ayahuasca retreat and the kind of messy turbulence that I experienced after it. And that's going to be called um, Holiday from the Self. And then I'm also co-editing a book about spiritual emergencies. That's going to be called Breaking Open, uh, How to Navigate Spiritual Emergencies. And my website is philosophyforlife.org. So, um, yeah, there's a free newsletter on that. And that's the best place to find me, I guess. Well, thank you so much, Jules Evans. This has been a really fun conversation going all over. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like of... these kind of, I like open dialogues like this, Hansa. So I've enjoyed it. Uh, So thank you so much and have a great uh, rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much for joining us for another awesome episode. And if you're interested in Jules Evans' first book about how Greek rational philosophy inspired the concept of cognitive behavioral therapy, be sure to check out our episode last year with Jaron Lanier. That's season one, episode six where we talk about how cognitive behavioral therapy is used by major companies today to try to influence how we see and act in the world. And until then, see you next time.